So now, grab your Bibles and, and let's take a look once again at um, Genesis, Genesis chapter 37. Um, and we're moving, as I said, to uh, wrap up our study of the book of Genesis. We're in uh, chapter 37. I'm going to read to you uh, beginning at verse 12 and all the way through 28. So you follow in your copies of this book. This book that contains no error. This book that is, is inspired and infallible. The very mind of God is black words on a white page. You follow as I read from it. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say, that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to, the, to them, Shed no blood, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let us not let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. You know, guys, there are, there are few families that are more dysfunctional than the one that you see described here. The one that Joseph was raised in, what a, what a mess they were. Joseph, I, I think, you know, um, in your previous training in Sunday school, but if you have none of that, let me tell you about him. He was um, 
He was the 10th of Jacob's, he was the 11th of Jacob's 12 sons. He was the one that was most loved by his father, and that uh, favoritism was demonstrated in that robe that he wore, that he wore, you know, that robe of many colors. You remember that, I think. Well, eventually, um, his other 10 brothers, his 10 older brothers, uh, got so sick of their father's favoritism that they decided to kill him. Now, actually, it all started off in hate. And then it moved from hate to considering murder. And then they thought, no, how about um, just a little torture? And then they finally settled on slavery. Here's a guy, that is Joseph. His day started, um, and he was a robed prince. By the end of that day... He was a naked slave on his way to Egypt. Where's God in all this? Well, you hold that thought. um, If you'll hold it for about a month, because we're going to come back to it. Where is God in all this? Guys, this morning, instead of focusing on Joseph, which is normally what we've done, and, and we've done it in the past, Um, you know, trying to figure out certain things about Joseph. What I'd like for you to do this morning is concentrate not on Joseph, but on Joseph's dysfunctional family. (laughs) That, that mess of a family in which Joseph was raised. I want you to fix your attention on them. Those, uh, those brothers of his who, who ultimately, um, conspired to get him sold into Egypt. The ones that despised him. The ones that rejected him, the ones that, that uh, thought about killing their brother, um, because in their response to their brother, there is some similarities that I want you to see to the, the, the dislike that people today have for Jesus Christ. Guys, lest you think that the hostility towards Christ today is anything new, Let's, let's allow Joseph's brothers to teach us a thing or two about, um, about what it means to reject, what it means to, to despise, and particularly despise Christ today. Because I think you know this, guys. Joseph, Joseph, I've said this before, Joseph is a type of Christ. And so, um, We can watch his life, or one of the reasons that we study his life is so that we might learn things about about who Christ is, what he did, and and how people responded to him. And that's what I want you to see today, guys. I'm not so interested in in how, how Jacob's brothers treated him. I'm far more interested in how... Our culture responds to Christ today. Because, guys, I'm suggesting that Joseph's brothers, they're a type too. Whereas, whereas Joseph is a type of Christ, that family is a type. They're a type of us. You know, uh, we can learn certain things about, I mean, from them. We can learn certain things about how our, our culture, generally speaking, responds to Christ. We can learn things. 
But that's, that's, um, that's a little bit too far removed, if you know what I mean. Um, because there are also things that you and I can learn, not about our culture's response, but about our response. About our specific response. Things about, things that we can learn in this story about our hearts. Gang, this little story here is more about my heart than it is about my culture's heart, whatever that is. I'm concerned about that culture. And I'm concerned to reach them. And I'm concerned about how they respond to the proclamation of truth. And, and, and I want to try and figure out how to reach them. Yes, yes, yes. But guys, this story is, a, is far more helpful for me to understand my own heart. And at the same time, learn things about why the culture is, responds the way it does to the Savior. Okay, so here's the storyline. Here's the story that I, I just read you. Let me see if I can summarize it for you kind of briefly. It's a story about an anxious and a concerned father who, who sends his son, his beloved son, to care for his other children, who at this particular moment are far away from the father. The son, in this story, was in the midst of, he was in the midst of an act of showing love for his brothers when they attacked him. This son, this son here in this story, is in, is in perfect submission and, and subjection to his father, and who, I don't know whether you notice it, but immediately responds favorably and is willing to go on this very long and difficult and dangerous journey for the purpose of mercy, not for the purpose of censure or judgment. And it's that son, in the midst of that act of mercy and love, is treated with contempt and hostility and, and a murderous rejection. That's the story. That's the story I just read. And their response, that is, these brothers' response, is nothing short of reprehensible. So did you see it? Did you see it? Do you know what this is about? This is about how people respond to the son who was sent by the father. <laughs> that reminds me of another story that I found over in the New Testament about how people respond to the son who was sent by a father. You see that? That's what we can learn, ladies and gentlemen, about how people respond to the beloved son who was sent by the father. We can learn about how I respond to the son who was sent by the father. So take a look. Take a look at, at their response and hopefully learn some things about our own hearts. Um, take a look at their response to the beloved son who was sent by the father. Uh, their offense, that is, their offense with this son, this beloved son, really centers around two things. It centers around the dreams and the robe. Now, guys, I didn't read you about the dreams. Uh, I, I thought it was too long. But the, the, uh, the uh, robes, oh, excuse me, the dreams begin 
in verse 5. If you'll notice, it says, now Joseph had a dream. And then in verse 9, then he dreamed another dream. Uh, verse 5 through 8 tells you about one dream that Joseph had. And verses 9 through 11 tell you about another dream that Joseph had. And then you hear about this robe. You know, you, it's mentioned over here later on. But, but these brothers are particularly offended by two things. Number one, those dreams. Did you notice over here in, in verse 19 it says, here comes the, here comes the dreamer. They hated those things. They were offended by the dreams. They were offended by the robe. Let me see if we can figure out why. First of all, let me start with a question. A question for you. Guys, if, if the brothers didn't think that these dreams were true, if they really thought they were just foolishness and they, that they, they, they really weren't from God, then, then why don't, why don't they just blow him off? Just, just, just ignore him. Just dismiss him. I mean, if, 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 if they weren't true and they're just a bunch of poppycock anyway, just, just ignore it. But that's not what they did, did they? You know, guys, um, I have a, a Russian granddaughter. Actually, she's, uh, she's from Tajikistan. And, um, she is a little girl who actually, really, literally lived in a hole in the ground before she was taken to a Russian orphanage. She's six years old, we think, because, I mean, it's not exactly like they give you a birth certificate when, when, you, uh, when you adopt these little ones from these Russian orphanages. Um, she... Um, was given a birthday. That is, my daughter and son-in-law just gave her a birthday. Um, which is close, but we don't know exactly when she was born. And we, we think that it's a pretty good estimate that she's six, six years old. Well, that little family was with us over Christmas. Um, you know, the little family, it's my daughter and son-in-law, and, and they've adopted two Russian orphans, and then they had a baby. Uh, in between the adopting of these two orphans, they had a baby. Um, Charlotte is her name. And, but um, they adopted a little boy about three years ago whose name is Kolya. I think many of you know this story. But they adopted Kolya. And then last April, they adopted the other little girl whose name is Farida. And um, this little family was with us over Christmas. And this was Farida's first Christmas. I mean, not first Christmas in Memphis. This was her first Christmas. <laughs> this is this is the first thing. And but now Kolya has been with them for three years, and so Kolya. This was I think it's Kolya's third Christmas with us. And so Big Brother um, had filled this little girl's heart with these stories about Christmas at at Big Jim's and Grand Susie's. So you know visions of sugar plums. Just danced in this little girl's heart. Well, on Christmas morning, um, I'm already up and um, uh, sitting in my little chair and um, sitting in my little chair. And, and um, down from upstairs comes running Kolya 
and Frida. Uh, you know, and they are ready to begin the, the Christmas fest, a la Big Jim and Grand Sue's. But because their little cousins um, weren't there at our home yet, um, we, I told Kolya and Farida that they would have to wait a few minutes before they started ripping through all those gifts. And so, wait they did, very patiently, very, very sweetly. And while they were waiting, this little six-year-old granddaughter of mine came running over to my chair and, and jumped into my lap. And she says to me in broken English, she says, um, Big Jim, Big Jim, guess what, guess what? And I said, what? She said, I saw Santa. And she says it real cute. She didn't say Santa Claus. She didn't, she didn't say Santy with a, you know, with an E on the end. She, I saw Santa. And I said, you did? And she said, I said, where? She said, out my window. And he went, and she did this exactly, she said, and he went, ho, ho, ho. Now, ladies and gentlemen, tell me, what do you think was going on in my head at that moment? Do you think I was thinking, I hate you, and I want to kill you? Was I thinking that? No, 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 no. It's only fantasy. It, it's it, it's just it's just childlike, dreamlike fantasy. And so maybe you you snicker at it and you uh, you, you laugh a little bit, and, and then you move on. But that's not what these brothers did. With Joseph's dreams. That's not how they responded, did they? Oh, no, no, no. In fact, if you look at your text uh, in verse 8, it says, uh, Are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. No, 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 they didn't dismiss it. No, 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 they hated him. They hated him for his dreams and his words. Why? Why did they hate? Because, ladies and gentlemen, they did believe those dreams. And they knew what those dreams meant. And here's what those dreams meant. Just like I read you in verse 8. What those dreams meant were that he, that is Joseph, was going to rule over them. And that simply is not an idea that they could tolerate. I'm never going to sit idly by and let him rule over me. You know, there's a, there's a parable in the New Testament. It's in Luke 19, if you want to look at it later. But it's one of the parables of Jesus. And he, um, it's a parable about a nobleman. Now, I don't know what a nobleman he is, but he sounds wealthy. But he's a nobleman, and he is, it's a parable now. It's just only a parable. And uh, the nobleman is going off to a far country so that he can receive an inheritance. And he leaves his kingdom or his domain or whatever, he, he leaves it in the, in the care of the citizens. That's what they're called in the parable, at least in my translation. They're called citizens. 
And he gives them some money to work with. He gives them minas. Now, I don't know what a mina is, guys, but it's some kind of measurement of money. And he leaves them minas behind. And while he goes off to the far country to, to receive his inheritance. And so as he's on his way back or before he gets back, the citizens get together. And they have a powwow and, and the citizens conclude this. And if, and if you'll notice, it's in, it's in, um, it's verse 14 of Luke 19. The citizens say this. This is what they say in response to the, to the, to the, uh, to the nobleman, you know. Here's what they say. And, and this is the quote. They say, we will not have this man to rule over us. No way. We don't want this man to rule over us. Now, gang, the point is this. Part of, part of the offense that men, all men, not just the culture, part of the offense that all of us have with Christ is because Christ claims to be king. And if he's the king, that means that I'm not, that I can't be, and I long to be. Ever since Genesis 3, I've longed to be. I want control. I want to rule in my life. Now, guys... um, What does that tell you about the human heart? Well, several things I want to mention, but one of the things it tells us, at least about the non-Christian, it it, it tells us that his offense is not intellectual. And you know those that cousin that you've got and that brother who teaches at the local university and and, and he keeps telling you that that my my biggest problem is my intellectual uh, hang-ups with the, uh, the Christian message. That's not the issue. Never has been the issue. The issue is not intellectual. The issue is, I'm not going to let him rule over me. You know, am, am, am I the only one who thinks it's odd that that, that Tears for Fears song, you know, everybody wants to rule the world. Do you know, that's not a very good song. You certainly can't dance to it. But... That song keeps getting requested on noon tunes with Bill Bannister on WRVR or whatever. WRVR. It keeps getting requested. And, and then Bill Bannister says something really cute about, oh, I don't want to rule the world. I just want to rule my little portion of it. <laughs> and we all snicker and go on our ways. And, but no, no, ladies and gentlemen. At the base of our heart, Dead gummit, I will not have this man to rule over me. I didn't want him to be king. Because I want to be king. You know what? It also tells us something about what it means to become a Christian. Because, guys, um, if essentially, becoming a Christian is yielding to the rule of another. It's, it's acknowledging the right of somebody else to call the shots in my life. 
And that's a hard thing for, for educated people like you. It's a hard thing for, for, um, for gifted people, for educated people, for successful people, for accomplished people. Because we don't like, we don't like to take orders. You know, I, I think it also says this, guys, that one of the marks, just one of the marks, but one of the bigger marks of, of Christian maturity, that is, one of the marks that, it, one of the evidences that I'm really, that I'm really becoming more and more mature in my faith is a growing comfort and a growing ease with God's rightful, generous, gracious rule over my life. That, that I, I, that I see more and more how, how wise and how liberating and how kind is His law. And, and I, I'm discovering that His yoke is easy and His burden is indeed light. And in fact, I, I, I'm charmed. I've become charmed with the, the life that He has, has, has mapped out for me. And, and not only that, I've come to the conclusion that the only life that really works is that one. In fact, I could say it in a word. I would say it like this. I love his law. I love it that he's king. And that I'm not. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, people's response to this Savior is not because they've got intellectual hang-ups. It's because they don't want anybody to rule with them. I'll say one other thing it says. It says something about parenting. It says that, guys, one of the kinder lessons that we can teach our kids is to not hate authority. You know, and I'm not trying, I'm not promoting some kind of passive, compliant little kids. They're no fun. But I am saying that one of the greatest things that you as a parent can teach your child is that all authority is not bad. Yielding to authority is not bad. It's not a bad thing, son. It's a good thing. Now, whether that gets translated to Christ, I don't know. But I'm telling you, it's a lesson that we can teach because that's, that comes packed into our hearts from the day we burst forth from the womb. Listen to those dreams. Bah, he's going to reign over us. I'm not going to sit on the Bible that. It's just a glimpse into the human heart, ladies and gentlemen. But that's not the only thing they hated. They also hated that robe. <laughs> they, they, um, it really irked them. Um, look, look at verse 3 of chapter 37. I, I, of course, I didn't read this, but um, it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him. And the symbol of that father loving him more than the rest of us was that blasted robe. 
It symbolized that he was special and I'm not. And they were reminded every time they saw that robe that they were, oh, I hate to use this word, uh, but make, listen. Every time they saw that, him in that robe, they, it, it reminded them that they were inferior to him. Not just across the board inferior, but when it comes to him, I'm, I'm inferior. I don't like that word either. Do you? But you'll notice in verse 23, they, they stripped him of that robe. They hated that thing and they hated him who wore it. Because it was a galling reminder that, that he claimed to be special. Why is he any better than the rest of us? I mean, don't, don't, don't try to tell me he's, he's unique. Hey guys, um, do you know what pluralism is? I mean, those of you who, you know, read or, I mean, do you know what pluralism is? It's not a hard word. It's not one of those big, I mean, it's not a hard concept. Uh, pluralism is rampant in our 21st century, but pluralism is a, is a philosophical position. It's, it's a mindset. It's a, it's a conviction. Pluralism, says a lot of things, but it says this. It says, when it comes to religion, uh, you are free to believe anything you want to believe. As long as you don't try to tell me that what you believe is better than what I believe. I mean, you can believe anything you want to believe. That's called pluralism, ladies and gentlemen. There is a plurality, you see? That's why it's called Pluralism. There's a plurality of, um, of religious thought. And man, you can believe anything you want to believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But don't you dare. Don't you dare try to say that yours is somehow superior to all the others. And when and if you do. People are going to hate you. Because they, they see you walking around in some robe. And um, they're saying, who do they think they are? <laughs> hey guys, um, don't be a pluralist. <laughs> Being a pluralist is sad. Because you know what being a pluralist says? It says, I want to wear the robe. <laughs> and if I can't wear the robe, nobody's going to wear the robe. I want to be the special one. I, I don't want you, I don't want anybody more special than me. And so to, to create a situation where I can feel like I wear the robe too, we create pluralism. And we say, everybody can wear the robe. 
You want the robe? You can wear the robe. Because we all got a robe. Everybody's got a robe. I mean, you believe anything you want to believe. Just don't, just don't, but don't ever say that you're special or that yours is unique. Gang, um, Christianity makes a claim to uniqueness. You do know that, don't you? You know, I've often wondered why um, people like Dr. Laura, who I think has kind of waned in popularity. I mean, this was years, but Dr. Laura could say things on her radio broadcast that were <laughs> that were so good, you know, about living responsibly and taking responsibility for yada 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 and 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 adultery being wrong and all these. I mean, she just really nailed these things. And the, and the, 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 the populace loved her. But the one thing that she would never say is that there's a uniqueness to Christianity. Because once you say that, people get really angry. Again, Christianity's claim to uniqueness is not some power play like, like you see unfolding on the national and global scene like one one nation butts up against another, you know, like uh, Ethiopia and Somalia right now. They're kind of duking it out. And, and uh, at the end, you can triumphantly walk away and say, my team beat your team. Or the, the same kind of thing you see playing out or played out on the, in the hood where, um, um, where one gang is, um, is uh, fighting the other gang where the Crips and the, the other guys and the Sharks and the Jets, and they're all beating each other up because then they can walk away and they say, you know, my team is, is better than your team. That's not the point of Christianity's claim to exclusivity. Christ's claim to uniqueness, gang, in John 14, 6, is not designed to dominate you. It's not designed to... To crush you. It's designed to liberate you. It's designed to deliver you. It's It's designed to save you. But you gotta know this, guys. It is an unavoidable conflict that either Jesus was wrong to have made the claim in the first place or His enemies are wrong by rejecting it. Gang, Jews did to Jesus in the New Testament what Joseph's brothers did to Joseph in the Old Testament. And for the same reasons. And 2,000 years later, the same mistake is being played out in in the media, in high schools and colleges. And it may even be be played out in your heart, in you. Because when you hear this about him being a king, or that this is a unique religion and claims to be the only way to heaven, Because, ladies and gentlemen, those two things are packed in the human heart. They've been there since Genesis 3. 
And what you see in Joseph's brothers is what we see today. And it may even be what we see in my own heart. Guys, 21st century Western man hates to be ruled. And he hates being told that there's only one way. And so he, he understands all that. Um, he understands that to mean that he is not free to concoct any old religion that he wants to concoct. And when he combines those two ideas, that is, I don't want to be ruled, and you're not going to tell me that I can't, uh, you know, define my own. When he combines those two ideas, the point for him is very clear. The point is, I'm not the center. I'm not in charge. I don't get to draw the lines, and I don't get to make the rules. And so I, along with a lot of my friends, put together a plot to get rid of him. And the plot, the plot is multifaceted. But one of the things it makes is, one of the claims is, there's so many intellectual flaws in that system. No, there isn't. The issue is not intellectual, ladies and gentlemen. The issue is moral. It always has been and always will be. They say, ah, you can't believe something as outdated and old-fashioned and countercultural and counterintuitive as this book. And for these reasons. That's not the issue. And you know it. It's not the issue. The issue is, I don't want to be ruled, and I don't want to be told that there's only one way. I don't want to hear about your dreams, and I don't want to hear about that robe. Guys, do you know the only thing that will change that offense? It's not by intellectual argument. The only thing that will change that offense is grace. Sovereign grace. It's an act where God exchanges a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And suddenly, being ruled by a king, (laughs) at least a king as good as this one, becomes my utter delight. And and discovering that there's only one way, why, gosh, I'm thrilled to know that there's one. After I've discovered how ravaged I've been by sin, I'm glad there is one way that God will accept me. Nobody needs to tell me how wicked I am. I know it. I'm just glad somebody told me that God has found a way to save somebody as wicked as I am. And I have found him and his word and his law, I have found it to be my absolute delight. And oh, that I had found it sooner. I could have saved myself a whole lot of pain. Let me tell you one thing that won't change that heart. 
that heart that hates to be ruled and hates to be told. There's, only, there's one thing that won't change it, and that's moral reform. That is from the outside in. It won't work, guys. Going to church more, read your Bible more, those are good things, but they won't change that heart. It's only an act of sovereign grace. And oh, by the way, um, I get to wear a robe. Christ's. Our Father, I do pray that you will use this story to um, uh, elucidate the, uh, the kinds of things that flounder around in my heart, in the hearts of those that we love. And, and I pray, O oh God, that we might find ourselves more and more delighted over your rule in our lives and the privilege of finding reconciliation through Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will use this reminder to um, help us see the deep ravages of sin, and the inroads it has made to our souls. Now, Father, set us free. Set us free. Liberate us by this great and good King, the one whose rule has become our glory. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name.